Hello, beautiful people. I'm pleased to announce that the original cast live will be making its triumphant return to the Flying V Awesomeathon Sunday, April 8th at 4 p.m. in downtown Bethesda. I've been toying with the live show format and I'm excited for you to see the new show. The show is part of the second Flying V Awesomeathon, their 24-hour fundraiser, and I'm so happy to be a part of it again. Go to unknownpenguin.com/live for details. Tickets are first come, first served, and free. But when you come down, maybe you'll give some money to Flying V because they're awesome and you should. And they're doing a show of mine this fall. And you should come see that too. But for right now, come to the Awesomeathon and donate money. Again, the original cast live at the Flying V Awesomeathon, April 7th, 4 p.m. Cheap is free, but donate to Flying V because they're awesome. Unknownpenguin.com slash live for details. Before we get started, I need to thank another Patreon patron. Thank you, Lee Liebeskind. Lee is one of those rare artists that not only wears many hats, actor, producer, director, etc., but also wears them well. Thanks to your patronage, I now have access to better analytics about the show. So I'd like to say hello to our listeners in Ireland my family's home country, Canada, our neighbor to the north, and Japan. I've never been to Japan. Want to get thanked on this podcast? Just go to patreon.com slash originalcastpod and swear fealty to the original cast. There are a few tiers of patronage, but they all come with access to our bonus monthly podcast, The Original Cast at the Movies. Our pilot episode on Moulin Rouge is available on this feed so you can sample before you buy. This month, our movie is the greatest movie musical ever made with special guests Lee Liebeskind and Liz Maestri. That's right, we're talking about the 2003 American Idol motion picture from Justin to Kelly. If you haven't seen it, run, don't walk. It's, it's absolutely incredible uh, on every level. And I can't wait to talk about it with Lee and Liz. And we're just going to, uh, it's the best movie ever. Again, patreon.com slash original cast pod. All right, here's the show. Whenever my world falls apart, I never lose hope or lose heart. Whatever the form of the storm that may brew, not with you to lean on, darlings, you. Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is a DC actor who just graduated from college, he said. I put him on the spot. I guess, I guess I'm... The way I just said that, it made it sound like I didn't believe you. It's Harrison Smith, everybody! Oh, hey, everybody! How are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you, That's Patrick? good. I'm doing just fine here on this unseasonably warm day on this unseasonably warm day talking about this chipper musical talking about this chipper musical which is parade i go to fight for these old hills behind me these old red hills of home i go to fight In a town called Marietta In the old red hills of home Chipper, that's a, yeah, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I found a video online in my research of you, which I'm not going to play now, performing... uh, a song from this show. Oh. I believe in 
Not in the JPH. You're in the other room studio. No, we're in uh, whatever in the dance studio two twenty one. I think is that what it's what called it now? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it wasn't called that when I was there uh, at Catholic University. For those of you wondering what the heck we're talking about, but how did Parade come into your life? Well, it's weirdly, I think it might be the only show I've done twice. I've been in oh, twice, okay. which is a weird show to have been in twice. I think because it rarely ever gets produced, mm-hmm. but. Um, it came into my life in, I think, around 2013. I was introduced to it through a friend, um, Ryan Burke, who used to show me a lot of like kind of obscure catch recordings because he had a, a pretty extensive collection of them. Uh, and sort of the opening chords of the show happened, and it kind of sucked me in. Sure. And uh, I just kind of left flabbergasted by the show uh, because it does I mean it starts and ends the exact same way, and you get taken on a ride. And then shortly thereafter, um, I did it at the Kensington Arts Theater in Kensington. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was a young soldier and Frankie Epps, who's the boy. Mm-hmm. And then I did it in April of this year at Keegan. At Keegan, yeah. Yeah, um, where I was the young soldier again, but then Britt Craig, who is the kind of crooked reporter. Oh, in the show. okay. Singing big news. Yeah, singing big news. All right. But only one of those versions uh, still exists in the show. Right. Because they made a ton of cuts. They have made a lot of cuts, yeah, and changes. Um to the show since it originally premiered in uh, in 1998. It's super <laughs> important, if you don't know this show, to know why we're kind of joking about it being chipper. So for those of you people who don't know, can you tell everybody what Parade is about? Yeah, Parade is about the, I believe, the only recorded lynching of a Jewish man or woman in the United States of yes. America in 1913. I believe that's correct. I believe it's yes. 13, the play ends in 15. Is that yeah? I knew the play ended in fifteen. Um, so yeah, but it's all about the 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 entire first act of the show is kind of about the circumstances leading up to the discovery of this fourteen year old girl's body in the basement of a factory, uh, and kind of culminates in a really unique for musical theater kind of twenty five minute sequence of people standing around mm-hmm. watching this trial unfold. Um, lynching was in fifteen. Which is lynching trial was in, 15. was in was in thirteen. Um, but it kind of culminates in the end of the first act with this large extended 25-minute courtroom sequence, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of un- operatic in a way and yeah. unlike anything else that I think is kind of in the musical canon right now. And then in the second act, it kind of turns into a love story between a man and his wife uh, and ends the end of the play. It does not end well. Well, no, as you say, it is about a lynching. So just to be clear, so it's a, the true story about mm-hmm. Leo Frank... Uh, who was convicted of the murder of Mary Fagan. He uses all real names, as far as I know, too. If you Google these people... They're real, yeah. Yeah, everybody comes I up. I think there's a couple characters in the show that are kind of a mixture of yeah, a few people. Yeah, composites of a few people, yeah. yeah. But besides uh, that, it's pretty accurate. It's very, yeah, it's, it seems to be very historically accurate. And it is uh, the... Yeah, so it, it, he is he's arrested, tried, and convicted, and sentenced to death... Uh, for killing Mary Fagan, his sentence is commuted because there's some questionable testimony. Yeah, there's a lot, not of, a lot of evidence. Kind of backdoor creepy practices that kind of happen. A lot of intim- intimidation of witnesses. Yeah, a lot of coaching of the young girls that work in the factory to kind of come out and and testify against him. Yeah, and it actually gets commuted. It's not as clear, I think, in the version that exists right now. But there's a letter that was written historically written on the deathbed of Judge Roan, who was the judge mm-hmm. that oversaw the case. He wrote a letter, which is on the current with the cast recording that we're talking about today. He wrote a letter to uh, the state saying, I don't 
think this was right. I don't think this went down correctly. There are flaws in the case. Oh, okay. Yeah, the letter to the governor. And right. that's when uh, that's when the sentence kind of got commuted. Yeah, it got commuted that. to life in prison, and then out of sort of outrage, um, the the citizens of Marietta tore Leo Frank from the jail and lynched him in and, a very like kill the beast. Type oh yeah, sequence. in a in a in a way. Uh, yes, absolutely. And is um, yeah. So it's super happy. Uh, <laughs> And not a, this is one of those musicals that when, I remember I told my dad, because the title doesn't give you anything. And I think you remember being like, what's that? Like he saw the CD or something. Be well, like, what's that show about? Happy. Right. I said, that's the story of, uh, I said, have you ever heard of Leo Frank and Mary Fagan? And he went, they made a musical out of that? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, they did. And it was, it is that kind of show, I think, in the sense of uh, you kind of can't believe they, it's a hard one to explain, you know. I, like yeah. I've done it twice, and it's a hard one to explain to family and friends. Like, hey, you got to come out, you got to see this. <laughs> but it is really an important show, and I mean, I think even now, like it's just so. It, it's early nineteen nineteen hundreds, but a, a lot of the language in the show, a lot of the uh, themes, are, are just like ripped out of today. Like, well, yeah, it is certainly come some, back around something that it doesn't go away. This sort of, I mean, the fear mongering. The no. uh, paranoia, and even the the frenzy of journalism, the, right. the whole the whole journalistic side of it, the this kind of like demagoguing of of in this case Jewish people. Yeah, it really, yeah, it it it's terrible. Like, and and, and it's so <laughs> terrible. I have to say that I don't listen to it uh, as much as I think it's great. I can't listen to it i've never seen it i would like to see it um but i find it which i you could consider to be a a compliment uh i find it really really hard oh, to a- enjoy in a, on any kind of level because of just the the just how terrible it all is and how avoidable <laughs> right it was. I, I also it's, think it's like it's an appreciation show more than it's an enjoyment show right in a lot of ways yeah it, it's meant to be taken in and and appreciated i think far more than it is meant to be taken in and enjoyed right uh, and it's important as you say it is an important story it's also a story that i didn't realize until i was researching for this that it was uh, viewed kind of as being forgotten um that the events were so terrible that it wasn't something that even Jewish people talk to each other about as an event because it was just so awful and horrific. I mean, and it it it, had kind of been repressed. Right. And the musical in a lot of ways doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of how horrific it was. I mean, they were selling uh, at the site. I mean, they were selling postcards with pictures of him. Yes. Hanging. Hanging Horrible, despicable, awful things. Yeah. So I, I mean I understand that that yeah. be blacked out of the memory in a lot of ways and and this musical was my singular exposure to this event mm-hmm. before before kind of diving further into it. There's a lot of really great books and, and movies. There's and a lot of good it. books. Uh, there's a lot. There's one I think it's a TV movie with Peter Gallagher as Leo Frank, which I think is maybe miscasting, but that's fine. <laughs> um, which I don't remember. I think it was called The Murder of Mary Fagan or something. It's very Yeah, the, yeah, it is called network, The Murder Yeah, yeah, the network TV, you know, movie of the week about this. Because um, it is a sort of sensational story, but it is, the, the parts of it that I enjoy and the parts of it that I find very listenable is the love story aspect, which is the thing that really keeps it, keeps it from being unrelentingly awful 
Right. I think, I mean, it makes the musical watchable. I think without that story, it's kind of becomes too jarring. Yeah. Because, well, and, and it is the, the redemption at the end of the, the play in a lot of ways, because you kind of do see this at the beginning of the play. I don't want to say like a broken marriage, but certainly a stilted one. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, or at least two people stuck in this very, uh, what seems to be this very difficult to get out of place of stasis. Yeah. <laughs> and the play kind of reignites them only to... Well, I've heard it, I don't remember if away. Jason Robert Brown described it this way or Alfred Urey described it as a love story about two people who fall in love after they get married. Like yeah. it is that, and it really is that. And what's so interesting about it from a dramatic standpoint, and one of the things I appreciate about it greatly, is that there are, we don't start the show with any likable characters. Or Ex- really any context. Yeah, that's true. It is thrown right in. And, and there's a whole, the, the beginning of the show is really bizarre if you don't know what's happening because it does open on that young Confederate soldier. And then there's about, there's a huge time jump. I'm not sure what it is. It's 50 I think. years. It's yeah. a 50 year time jump. Yeah. It, about, give, give or take. In yeah. about eight bars of music, you jump. Right. You jump 50 years. Yeah. And it's not, I mean, it's not written in the stage directions how that goes down. I mean, that is really... It's also kind of my only quibble <laughs> with the show, <laughs> is I don't know what that's doing there. Now, this might be because I haven't seen it, so I, I look to you for help. But it is that book ending of it, of the old Red Hills of Home, feels very, very, very odd. Because I would expect, if there is a bookend number that it would be it would be something thematically connected to what everybody was going through and if this is a story about it's a story about a lot of things but the it sort really of is. yeah the the hope the hopeful note it ends on just is the idea with this with the song all the wasted time is the fact that these throughout this terrible ordeal these two people have found each other you know, right. In, in there is most, some light. There is some light. There's a little hope. It's terror. It still is an awful ending, but it is, you know, it's what happened. You can't fight that. So I'm just a little bit perplexed by the old Red Hills of Home as an ending, not as an opening, but more as the finale reprise because it just feels very. I, I don't know. It feels very positive, like, but I don't quite know. Like, is it supposed well, to? In, I think, in your estimation, is it supposed to be ironic or is it supposed to be damning or what do you? It's a bit ironic. I think it is. Um, you know, I mean, I think the first song obviously is atmospheric, is meant to to build the atmosphere of the world that yes. we're about to live in, right? And I think showing them at the end, because if you think about, typically the images that I've seen or in the productions that I've been in, is he, he gets hung. Mm. The there's a small scene between Britt Craig and uh, Lucille, and then the entire ensemble comes out and sings that as life goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it is kind of, it, it, I think it's meant to be a statement of how, kind of how little this has affected everyone else. Well, that in is this certainly town. true. Yeah, and, and how and how despite this kind of like pride that they've had in their homeland, destroying a life essentially. Mm-hmm they still have it so deeply ingrained in them that they come out immediately after this lynching has happened in their mm-hmm. town and just sing mean, out. Yeah. Which kind of represents, as you say, like this, the terrible marketing that went into this afterwards, the sort of the, the postcards that were sold famously of, of his dead body on the tree and things like that. Like it, it really does. It works in that way. Um, I just don't know if it goes, I don't know. Uh, uh, as a listen, it's certainly yeah. very confusing. Yeah, the show itself, I That's think, is I a really confusing it. listen. Yeah, 
I really would love to see it. I, 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 I would love to see it. I would also not love to see it. <laughs> really it is so hard to sit there. Like, my parents come and are like, you know, they see everything that I do. And, like, when I told them I was doing this again, like, the biggest <laughs> sigh of, like, oh, my God, we're going to, we got to sit through this again. <laughs> Well, God bless them. They're, I know. Uh, <laughs> God bless them. You gotta love them. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, that would be that'd be a moment. It's uh, yeah, it's it's yeah. I don't know. I find it to be kind of enigmatic because the score is gorgeous. I think it is absolutely beautiful score. It's a huge leap too from songs for a new world. Well, the whole story kind of behind. The, how the show came into being is really strange mm-hmm. because it was originally a Sondheim project. It was pitched to Sondheim. Yeah, pitched to yeah. Sondheim. Or, yeah, by Hal and, Prince. And then I believe Jason Robert Brown came through it by way of Daisy. Right, because Daisy they Prince. They were doing songs Prince, for New His daughter World. had directed songs for New World and, and said you should tell him to do it. And he was like a kid when he, was he very wrote young. this. I don't remember how old he was exactly. I will look it up. I want to say he's like early, early 20s. Well, let's see. How connected are we to... Last five years, because if it's last five years is as accurate as we say it is, then he would be 28 when this show came out, and he was 28 when this show oh. came out. So he was 28. Uh, <laughs> wow. So this is the book Jamie's writing yeah. that whole time. Yeah, yeah, Well, all the way with JRB. Uh, <laughs> God bless him for that. Yeah, so this is the... I mean, it is, and he was hailed when the show came out, as the lyric in Last Five Years says, isn't he wonderful, just 28, the savior of writing. It was that, I remember that being like, this guy is the guy. He's the new, the voice of the American theater. He's the new, he's going to save musical theater, which, I, you know. Like millennial Sondheim in a lot of ways, but it wasn't well, even Prima, there. It's Gen yeah. X Sondheim. It is that, like, you know, it, it's really, it was a really, really praised score, and it is a beautiful score. Um, I mean, he also kind of does that thing that... Um, that I think Garrens and Flaherty do really well in in ragtime, which is like write this kind of period music that doesn't sound particularly too period, you know. Like yeah. throughout throughout Parade, there is always this kind of there. There's this idea that that rock exists or like that <laughs> funk and blues exists the entire show, mm-hmm. which I think is so different than kind of how strict the genre had been before this show. Well, I mean, there's there's an understanding it seems to me in this score of. Um, the I'm trying to figure out how to put this. It, it's the difference. It's the it's the understanding, and I, I think Flaherty and Aaron's is a good comparison because it's understanding what makes music sound, um, sound of a certain period very very well, right. and w- the way he futzes with it, and the way Flaherty and Aaron's futz with it too, actually seems to be in the rhythms to me. They are very, the songs drive, oh, and yeah. they're still music theater songs, even though they're in this other kind of style they have this this force behind them and this push and this point of view they're not writing ragtime songs you know they're writing songs for a show that are in a ragtime style right or have that flavor you know yeah and what i I mean it's kind of undeniable the the show in a lot of ways i think to me has a lot of kind of undeniable uh like just licks in it like the piano lick at the beginning of real big news is just like one of the most awesome introductions to a song Stimulating, 
City news hound wants to take a flying jump into the creek. And songs like Picture Show that are very like that clearly he's having a lot of fun playing that song and you know writing that that sort of piano stuff that Jason Robert Brown is famous for. Right, complicated big piano uh, scores uh, and those two songs definitely feel like it. I know a spot near Mechanic's lot where you can see the parade real clear. I got a book you want to take a look. It's called The Thief and the Brigadier. I got gum. You want some? Haven't you gum for a year? Go on, go on, go on, go on. I bet your mama let you take it in the picture show. Go on, go on, go on, go on. I'm sure you're listening when I said no. How, like they're very performable, those songs. They're very sort of like take them out of the show and do them. Oh yeah. Songs. But I don't hear them. A lot. I think it's again. I like I just think it's kind of a hard sell. It does. It kind of. But you you almost expect like a song like Big News. I remember when I got this CD and and again you know struggled through it a little bit. But I remember thinking like, well, I'm going to hear songs like Big News and Picture Show around, right? Because they're very catchy and they do stick with you. And I have never been to a cabaret or a performance or a solo or anything where anyone's sung either of those two Have you heard an Old songs. Red Hills? People sing that a lot. I have heard Old Red Hills. I have also heard, um, I've heard Where Will You Stand a couple Whoa. times. Yeah, that is, which is dark and deep. But again, like that's dark, deep and at your, like you get it kind of. Right. Like, what's that show? Because if you go like, if you hear somebody sing Where Will You Stand When the Flood Comes, uh, and then people go, what's that from? And you go, it's from this show. You go, oh, gosh, yeah, I get that. Whereas if you sang Picture Show and somebody <laughs> said, what's that from? Well, have a seat. Uh, so the, the girl who just sang that song, she's she's going to die. Like next like scene. In, yeah, like in, in like two minutes, minutes of play. She really doesn't make it that long in the play at all. Well, she comes back. She does. She does. She, does. I mean, she gets dead. her big moment. Say, and... she's, she's dead. She's not coming back like, like she's not rising from the dead. She comes back in flashback. Um sort of quick quick tricky flashbacks and it is that's what's really funny about mary fagan especially dying i mean she's the, it's the inciting incident obviously yeah killing yeah. mary fagan but you know dying 30 minutes into the show 20 minutes into the show somewhere in there has been played by some pretty relatively famous people i mean it was originated broadway by, right christy carlson christy romano. carlson romano yeah it was the very first one uh Ooh. disney fans will know her from even stevens Wait, and right Tim before Possible. that yeah and she's her voice is highly un, like unrecognizable in this to me, um, and she's you know a big hit. the uh, connection to you and myself uh, played in the two thousand nine uh, out in L A was uh, Rose Hemingway, oh university graduate Rose Hemingway who uh, did uh, the How to Succeed revival with Daniel Radcliffe as Rosemary, and so it's a part that is. It's not just like two, like a song and a scene and you're out. You know what I mean? Like it's a part that is given to people who can really carry the weight of it. And who are certainly not 14. <laughs> well, very true. You know, which I don't think you want them. No, no. Well, be... we, I've done it two different ways. I mean, one time we had a pretty young girl. I think she was like 16, but still looked pretty young. And I mean, it's, he that is heavy. But then I did it another time. Well, the other time I did it, it was, she was like in her 20s, early 20s. That and it worked right. pretty early well. Early 20s yeah. feels a bit more, Yeah. It's just hard. It's just it's a hard show hard. to watch. It's a very, very hard show. And it's a very, 
I mean, it's a horrible, it's a horrible thing. I mean, she so she's strangled in the pencil factory that Frank owns where she works, right? Um, and is discovered the next. She's just and it's called parade, I should say, because she's killed on confederate memorial day yeah not real memorial day which i've I've been corrected for and musical theater fans will correct happy memorial day mr frank posts on facebook yes not uh, not the same Uh, (laughs) not at all no confederate memorial day which is uh in april april 26th i believe it is yep um and it is yes and there's a big parade it's called parade because there's a huge parade that goes past the factory and it's why she's sort of not missed right away because yeah. she was supposed to be going to the parade. And then, you know, it, it was 1915 and kids could just sort of, well, she was a work. I mean, she's full-time. Well, they all, they, yeah, they all are. All yeah. those kids are working There's in that pencil of factory. kids working at this pencil factory. And so she's not really missed until the next morning. And when she's discovered by the night watchman. Yeah. Named Newt. Named Newt, who is one of the people who was under suspicion. And it's still, I believe, in Steve Oney's book, And the Dead Shall Rise, it's implicated that if anyone uh, wasn't questioned thoroughly enough, it was him. He, well, because there's a, there's a note found with the body. And there's blood. There's They found blood on his coveralls in yeah. the morning after, but they couldn't, because of forensic testing at the time, they right. couldn't tell if it was blood or rust. Right. And there's also uh, the other main suspect in later years is uh, Jim Conley. Who kind of, I think, takes on the role of a bit of the antagonist, if, yes. if you, there is to be one in this play, besides the whole town. The way the play presents it, it certainly pushes the most the most suspicion on Conley as somebody who is arrested on another charge and then sort of pushed into testifying against right. Leo Frank, and who is an African-American man. And if you're wondering why they would not like arrest an African-American <sighs> for the murder of a, of a teenage girl... Um, Teenage white girl in uh, in the South in 1915. The the supposition, well, actually, what was going on at the time was that there was a s- simmering resentment against Frank because he was not only Jewish but from New York. You know, from, he was a Yankee, right. and there were a lot of Jewish business owners who who employed child labor. Now there were a lot of Christian business owners that employed child labor too, but. You know, nobody cared. Sure, and I think a lot of it. I mean, not not in any way. I think a lot of the play because Lucille, it's implicated in the actual text, is Jewish as well, but from Atlanta, right? And so the huge stink is this northerner, this whole anti-North, yeah, idea. Also, is is feeding into it absolutely in in part, yeah. And what is the that's true? Actually, a song that I really like, um, and listen, you know, if it pops up, I won't skip it. Is how can I call this home? Which oh, I think songs. is, and he has the lyric in it. The Jews are not like Jews. I thought the Jews were Jews, but I was wrong. I thought I would be fine, but four years down the line, with every word, it's very clear I don't belong. I don't cuss, I don't draw. So how can I call this home? So it is this sense, like you get from that song right away, which isn't quite an "I want" song. It's more of an "I am" song. It's yeah, just where he is and what's going on. Um, that Leo is totally disconnected from everything and anybody and any place. Which is like what really is, in a lot of ways, and just another layer of tragedy on top of this whole thing is that not only is it just this kind of quiet man, it's this quiet, very lonely man. Yeah. 
who has a lot and is still absolutely miserable and not at home and and in this kind of loveless well at the time what we meet them kind of this loveless or stuck marriage and then all this happens around him yeah and just sort of yeah yeah it's just ugh. it just well, makes it's so you feel hard ugh. because i don't it, it, i don't quite know it doesn't f- i think one of the reasons it gets kind of skipped over and one of the reasons it's uncomfortable is because it is it doesn't fit into a larger historical narrative right so if this was a story about an african-american man who had been wrongly convicted of murder and then lynched as uh, you know we have a place in our collective memory for that that goes to this terrible a lot of other things like that that happen and it fits into this narrative of the civil rights movement and all this other like we can kind of slide it there it doesn't to me diminish the horribleness of it I just have a place to put it in my brain where I can then relate it to other information and go, okay, that's what right. This is and of. in a lot of ways, what's so terrifying about this show is that it is kind of a missed story in the canon of of the dark days of American history. Yeah, you know, and 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 that the show because I think so many people don't know that it a happened or b when they're watching the show unless they read the director's notes know it's a true story. Right. Um, sort of realize that and come to that realization that something so horrible that affected such a large portion of a town, um, a major metropolitan area. I mean, yeah, it's um, Atlanta. Yeah, Atlanta, Atlanta right. Georgia. Yeah, you may, maybe um, you've heard of it. It's... Versus, <laughs> versus something <laughs> like that to happen. And maybe you've, flin- you've flown through there in your life. <laughs> and for us not to know, you know, or for people not to have something so horrific be present in their memory or be something that they associate. Right. Um, is really scary and jarring. Yeah. And it's also, but I think it ties into this fact, something the show does not shy away from, which I really respect them for not, for, for doing, but also makes it a hard show, is this thing I said before, that Frank is not a likable character. He's not unlikable, but he's not, he's not presented in a way that makes you go, you're not rooting for him. To, no. In any way. When the show begins, everybody's just kind of stuck. Lucille's complaining, um, Leo's complaining, you know what I mean? Like, it's the newspaper reporters complaining. Yeah. Like everyone is just kind of stopped in, like, bugs and amber. And this terrible thing happens that, you know, wasn't any of their faults, or, you know, but then suddenly shakes everything up and causes these people then all have to react to this terrible event. And... Leo spends the, the by the end of the show you do like him that's sort of the goal of the show it's like I'm right. gonna make you like this guy I'm gonna make this guy do things that will make you like him and it it it, it like a, it, it's just such a tricky little thing because you would expect this show to be like no no he was he was a good he was man. a good man he's an honest he man good husband he was a good thing and he wasn't those things and the show doesn't pretend that he was no and what's really I another thing that I think is really cool about what the show does and also really frustrating is that the only good things you ever hear out of him, uh, of, about him are from Lucille right. to the reporter Yeah, in that moment. That is the one time that you hit, you see the glimmer of like, well, maybe he didn't do it. If you don't go in with the knowledge of what happens by the end of the play or that he was wrongly convicted, I think it's a perfectly fair assumption from the way the play paints him in the beginning that it is a possibility that, that he did do it. Right. Until you get to the trial and there's these inconsistencies and these um, very clearly coached uh, right. 
coach testimony. There is an ov- like yeah, there is an overt scene of the police sort of, on, and it's on the recording. There, I, like I say, I haven't seen it. Only Jim Conlon. I got a piece of paper here that says you spent a lot of time on the chain gang. That right. Mm, twice, according to this. And the second time it says here you were out with the road gang and you just up and disappeared. Well, you know my term was about up. Really? Mm-hmm. I think you had a few more months to serve. You know what that makes you, don't you? Lucky? I was going to say an escaped convict. Now, what should we do about that? What was that you was asking me about, Mr. Frank? And then we're off to the races. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then, yeah, and it's on its way. It's also interesting to me that in later productions, and was this the way when you did it that Newt and Jim Conley are played by the same actor? Um, that is, uh, so when they reorchestrated it in 2008 at Donmar? Seven. Seven? Donmar, okay. Yeah. Uh, they did it in 2007. Um, they reduced the cast to 14. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a breakdown in the current license version from MTI where you can break it down. They they give you a full 14-person breakdown. And in that, there's uh, only two African-American actors, and they cover everything. So uh, a woman and a man, and uh, he plays Newt, Jim, and Riley, Riley yeah. who appears for one scene in um, the second act. <laughs> yeah, it's a very that's a very strange <laughs> character appearance. His name is never said either. Reference what is Riley's again? relation to the to the plot? I believe he is a uh, servant in the Frank house, or oh, in okay. the um, or in the governor's house. It's it's unclear to me still. Okay. Yeah. I, okay. Yeah, it's strange. <laughs> and then in the I mean in the original too, um, that whole rumbling and rolling open of Act Two is is a whole mess of people singing. Right. And then right. it's repaired down to only two. But yeah. Um, in one production I did it, we did it where. We used just two, and then at Keegan we used uh, four. Okay, actors of color. Yeah. Okay, so you did the so sort of in between the. Four we did sort of an in between, and the, and the fourteen yeah. is just a suggestion from them if you want to pare it down all the way, mm-hmm. but you can still present it obviously with as, as large of a cast as, as you yeah, want as you want to do. Yeah, yeah. They'll never they'll never fault you for hiring too many people. No, 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 no. Not at all. Um, yeah, it's uh now the the. God, it's just I, I don't know another way to say it, that it's just like such a tricky. Well, we're just like talking show. circles around that. that well, stuff. it's hard, but it's hard to, you know, and it's also borne out by the fact that I, I read one of the articles I read. You know, the show did star Brent Carver and Carolee Carmelo as the Franks, right? And you know, it's directed by Hal Prince. It's written by Alfred. The books by Alfred Urey, who won a Pulitzer for Driving Miss Daisy, and is a big, you know, playwright. And is regard some article I read described the show as a hit, the hit musical parade, but it was not a hit when it came out. Eighty in something 90, performances. Ninety eight. Yeah, ran for eighty four performances, thirty nine <sighs> previews, and eighty four performances at Lincoln at the Vivian Beaumont Lincoln Center. Big house, big big house, and I think too big. But it's just like this was a very well reviewed, well respected show that very few people saw well i guess that's kind of the goes back to the question of like who you know who is this for in mm-hmm. a lot of ways yeah i think it's a hard sell oh yeah it's a really hard sell i mean not only does it not have the name recognition outside of like musical theater heads right um it's a really tough sell because you say like well we could go see the tap dancing musical or we could go see the lynching musical <laughs> you know it's true. It's, it's true. really true. No, like, I mean, it's a start, and I don't mean yeah. to like make light of it, but like that just is what it is. Yeah. No, that's very true. It is that. 
I hadn't quite thought of it broken down that starkly. But when you're looking at two things you could buy tickets for, you do right. You go, do do that. You know. Yeah. Do I want to be important or do I want to be entertained? Yeah. And, well, and not that I don't think the show is entertaining. I mean, I I love this show. I think it's beautiful. But it takes difficult to a whole new place. Like Surely. when you say material is difficult or a show is challenging to the audience, there's a lot of different ways that can happen, right. and it can be because. The music is complicated or the themes are sort of loose and hard to follow. Or it can be just from a score standpoint. Like, for example, we just talked about it on this show and it opened the next year on Broadway. Uh, uh, Lacuse's The Wild Party. Mm-hmm. That's a tough show. Right. Deals with some tough themes and challenges the audience. It's one act. It's two and some hours long. It's a rough. Oh. It's a tough sled. And it lost best musical to contact. So, and, but the, <laughs> this musical at the Tony Awards uh, lost, you know, one best score, best book. We'll talk about best director in a second. I'm and, also uh, very, I, that's a very interesting, the best book is very interesting to me. And yeah. I don't know if it's because of the rewrites or whatever, but there is a lot of scenes of just people talking about what happened off stage, right. like in the time that's passed. <laughs> Which is, is a really strange musical trope that like doesn't happen that often. But I will say that the st- it's funny. It depends on what you consider the book is doing. Right. So, for example, Hamilton won best book, and there's two words of spoken dialogue in that whole thing. Sure. So, and also Tim Rice has won a couple of Tonys for best book for sung, sung through shows, sing through shows. Not for Jesus Christ, book. superstar. Not for superstar. Correct. But he did win for Evita. Uh, wow, and it is—I mean, T.S. Eliot won best book for Cats. Also. He won, but that's a best book posthumously by however many years. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, it's a little crazy. Uh, I have that's different. That's Natal- so Natalie Ann was here. We already we've already Whoa. litigated that. But the 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 <laughs> book also to me has to deal with structure, how the story is structured. Sure. And to that end, like for example, Hamilton does an amazing job of keeping everything clear and moving and progressing. Right. So from that standpoint, I actually think the book of Parade. Is really good. This uh, it's a very complicated story. There's a lot of moving parts, and I even on the recording, sure, don't really lose my place. I really know, like, you might get some of the like white Southern accents mixed up, and is that the governor or is that the prosecutor? Yeah, but give him like two bars of music, be like, oh, I know what he's singing about. I understand what who this character is. So from that standpoint, I think it is. Uh, it's a really good book. Now. To argue, argue the other side, uh, it was nominated against the book for uh, Footloose. Uh, okay, got it. A musical called Marlene that I am unfamiliar with. Yeah, I've never never heard of that. And a uh, a musical called It Ain't Nothing But the Blues, which, uh, as I quickly Google here, was a jukebox musical about the blues. So, so I think you kind of got to give it to Parade. And it's Alfred Urey. I mean, it's the other right. thing is he is a known quantity. He is he's a playwright who's now written a book of a musical. And he's people are just like, well, he's Alfred Urey. He's good. And well, so, and it's also you know, den- I mean, it's hard material to translate into a musical. And and if we're including some of the lyrics and etc. in there, I mean, then yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great right. book. And he, it's uh, just the I guess maybe the script itself has some kind of weird stuff in it. Sure. Again, lots of like people coming on and being like, well, in the past two weeks, this yeah, happened. This has happened. Yeah. Um, which I just think is is strange, but <laughs> it is a weird. You know, it's also a weird time. You can sort of say, like, why was Jason Robert Brown so lauded for this score and for being, like, the savior, as he puts in the last five years, the sure. savior of writing or the savior of musicals. And it's, I mean, Parade lost Best Musical that year to Fosse. 
Yeah. Which is a great show. I mean, see, I saw it. I saw that production in New York. It, it's a really great show. But the other nominated shows were It Ain't Nothing But the Blues, the jukebox musical, and Frank Wildhorn's The Civil War, which might be the worst musical I've ever seen in my life. So, Ooh. yeah, I know. I'm, and there's some cool tunes I in that show. Like that. I, oh, are there, Harrison? Yeah. There's like some cool songs if you're like a young tenor and like okay. to sing That's those songs. Fair, I but will. no, but yeah. yeah, it is kind of a weird. Show. Uh, also, out that year was Footloose nominated for best score, um, which is fine. I I don't, I don't have anything. They rewrote Civil War, didn't they? He has re kind of tooled Civil War. Okay, a couple okay, times. yeah, that's I can't what I say thought. that I've been paying close attention. No, 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 no. Um, and also nominated for best score that year was Janine Tesori's background score for a production of Twelfth Night, which is an interesting thing. I, I but it was a sl- must have been a slim pickings that year thing. on if Broadway. If you keep flipping through the Tonys, you sort of notice that the late '90s was a like there'd be one musical a year that would come out that would be like. A sit up and listen and then like two years later as i say in uh the next year let's see because the let's see the previous year it was lion king ragtime sideshow and scarlet pimpernel and uh in in 97 okay. and uh you know lion king obviously still running yeah that's probably one of the best years that's been for best musical when you read that but based i mean lion king based on a movie ragtime based on a book but also but it was a hit you know one best score sideshow didn't run for very long and was not well reviewed uh or was well-reviewed, excuse me, didn't run for very long. Scarlet Pimpernel, not well-reviewed, did run for a very long time. So, like, there was this weird confluence of, like, I think people felt there wasn't a lot of innovating in music theater. And then the next year, Wild Party, Swing, which was a jukebox yeah, swing musical. Yeah. Which James, I've seen, oddly enough, is I've a, a really well, strange show that I... I saw it at a high school. It's a, I saw it at the outdoor community theater near my parents' house in Annapolis. Oh, it's a lot of dancing. Oh, it's a lot, a lot of, of dancing. dancing. And swing. It's a fun show. And then Contact won Best Music. You know, it's a dance show and innovative in its own way. But revivals were the thing that was driving Broadway at the time. And there are right. huge musical revivals. Andy Get Your Gun with Bernadette Peters. You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown with the Lippa rewrites. Oh, yes. Uh, Superstar, Music Man with the, the, Su- the Susan, um, I almost called her Susan Sarandon, Susan Stroman production of The Music Man. Um Kiss Me Kate with Brian uh, Stokes Mitchell. Like, these are the shows that, like, once something, like, famous actors are doing revivals. They're not doing Right. Well, and the American musical was a, a bit lost at that time. I mean, we've kind of just come out of the, the eight, late 80s with the mega musical, mm-hmm. and America kind of been trying to find its own way back in the door. And yeah. um, I think, yeah, I think they spent a good amount of the 90s kind of flipping out. This was when the, was Rent? Rent was 96. So this is the, the point where. If your movie, if your musical wasn't based on a movie, it wasn't getting made. Basically, right. um, we're a, and this is the sort of the pre Avenue Q era, where after that, your musical had to be self referentially ironic if it was going to get, <laughs> which continued up through Book of Mormon. Uh, so, it, not to say that any of these shows are bad. It's just this was the, the trend at the time, and so. I feel that this the show gets a lot of credit, and Jason Robert Brown's score gets a lot of credit sure. for that reason. It was just sort of like, oh, and it's good, and it's also a little bit old fashioned in the music, right? Partially, as you say, because it's set when it's set, and it also I think is a story that like I wouldn't want to see a rock musical about this. Like I wouldn't want to no. see. You know, like a bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson type score it, on this story, it would feel very wrong. Right. Know? And it also feels very of that kind of Scarlet Pimpernel, Les Mis, that where things are s- a lot of parking and barking, you know? Yeah. A lot of like that Rodgers and Hammerstein, like 
uh, big songs, big sings for people standing right. in the middle of the stage, feeling their emotions. But like you say, it takes all the best parts of like rock and modern popular music and leaves out the synthesizers. Yeah, you know no, I mean? I mean, I think parts of this yeah. score jam. Like, oh, yeah. real big news is is such an awesome, uh, such an awesome song. Even where will you stand when the flood comes? When they're getting in those rounds. There is a pulse that you would not find in those. Well, and old it needs musicals. to be. I mean, it's it's a song like 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 you say. One of the things that makes this score really good is the sense that songs like that, like that's a song about somebody stirring up a crowd, right? And it stirs you up, yeah. Even though you totally like are this is a villain doing about to do a terrible thing, you're with it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you you are carried through that that number, and it also has songs in it that that like are so deceptive to me. Um, which is uh, uh, my child will forgive me mm-hmm. slides to the top of that line that like country ballad basically right that lulls you down this path where you're just sort of sitting there being like you know what like I know this doesn't have a happy ending but I think Mrs. Fagan's gonna come out of this and I'm gonna be like well at least that was okay and then like in literally the last moment it yanks the rug out from oh in, in such a disgusting way, way. will be safe the arms of the Lord, and as pure as the day of her birth, my child will be cozy and blessed and adored as she never could be here on earth, and my child will be watching me, giving me faith. In the future that's golden and new, my Mary will teach me to open my heart, and so I forgive you, Jew. And in a great thematic way, though, because you then completely understand. This is not going to this is not going to end happily. No. There's no way for this to end happily. And usually the song starts with uh Dorsey handing her the bloody dress. Right. Which is a really nasty image to lead yeah. you into that song and uh you kind of get lost in the dreaminess of it until that last ugh. But I mean Jessica Malaski's performance on this recording is just amazing. And it's it's another moment where I'm like god that's a great moment. I, thank you very much. I'm not going to listen to that. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is a song that I think I usually skip over. But I mean, there's also in the music, there's also a lot of really kind of experimental stuff. I mean, if if you listen to the in the trial, the sequence that's weaving in the girl's testimony with uh, "Come Up to My Office." Yeah. There's the part where it shifts back into the girls, and it's kind right. of polytonal for a minute. Yeah. Come on. Come on. 
Which is like it had to be kind of unheard of at Broadway at that time. I mean, because yeah. no one was really doing that until like Get All, right? And you'd expect you would expect those two melodies to work with each other. Like you'd expect to be like, oh, the composer is going to be clever here, and we're going to like line these two melodies up. And they do not, like you say, it, it's almost atonal. The mess it creates, it's a mess. Gets so, yeah, it is and it happens. Mess. They set you up for it very nicely earlier with the transition from Old Red Hills of Home to the Dream of Atlanta. is a nice being like we're gonna do stuff like that like right. this is gonna be jarring in moments this and then they really good. do it the end yeah. of the act that cakewalk where oh, they're playing yeah. in two different time signatures over top of each other <laughs> is designed to make you uncomfortable 100 percent, and it succeeds and it succeeds and it ran for 84 performances like that's what happens i think when you you succeed so and it's not like brecht who i find to be terribly boring it's not trying to alienate you it's trying to make you feel something it's It's evocative in that way it is but it's a very uncomfortable very uncomfortable thing it's trying to make you feel i also think it would be a, a very interesting movie musical I was thinking that listening to it this it's time It's very cinematic. It almost feels more comfortable to me in a movie than on stage. I would there love is... to see Joseph Gordon-Levitt play Leo Frank. Oh, wow. Um, there's a hot there's a Yeah, hot that's take. a hot take. That's a really <laughs> extremely hot take. <laughs> I don't right. know if he can sing, but there you go. <laughs> I think he, he sang in... Um... He's supposed to be in that Guys and Dolls movie. 500 Days a uh, Summer. He has that oh, big yeah. dance number in the middle. Yeah, yeah they were. I mean, he and Channing Tatum were supposed to be Sky Masterson and Nathan and Detroit. I think they still are. Is that not? Uh... I don't know. I, that's been in development for. I think I feel like I've been reading that for like five years. Same with, um, which I just read. I think is going to happen is that Spielberg West Side Story. He is. Yeah, that he's is like doing in, it. That's an active next. development. Yeah. yeah, we'll see what. Uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, the last update here. I've got uh, May of 2017. Uh, oh snap! JGL to direct maybe. And Channing Tatum, two star. Interesting. Oh, and JGL, too, also uh, 
to be be in it. Yeah, he's an. I mean, he's kind of an okay. awesome guy. <laughs> That's an interesting choice, is Leo Frank in the movie. I don't know. I wonder if he's too. The thing I like about Brent Carver, uh, not fresh off his Tony win for Kiss the Spider Woman, but pretty you know, fresh, pretty fresh, couple years, um, is how plain looking he is. The thing I like because the real Leo Frank is a very unassuming looking guy. Right. If you like pass him on the street, you you may not notice he was there. And what I like about Brent Carver, and also I think uh, T. R. Knight, who played him in uh, in the London, uh, the London, the L. A. production, um, which was the London transfer, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, is was how plain looking they are, how sort of average looking guys these these guys can be, and my concern about Joseph Gordon-Levitt, but of course about any movie actor, is that they're going to be on average better looking than your average human being. So it's kind of hard to tell. I don't quite, yeah. I think I you put him in a poorly fit suit, mess up his hair, give him some glasses, he could look. He could, he could do it. He could do it. He may still be like ugly handsome, but right. that's okay. <laughs> You're fine with that. But, I, but the larger point you make, I think, is is, is absolutely true. I, I, I wonder if it would be better as a movie musical uh, because there's a certain, aside from the fact that it, you know, it becomes a, t- a tenth as expensive to buy tickets for right. it, it. I think we, we take sort of movies that are about hard subjects. They're much more contained. Like it's, it's a movie. It was in the thing and it was there, you know, and sure. they're on screen and you can kind of remove yourself from it a level and, and experience it. Whereas when people like live on stage or doing terrible things to other people live, on, like as you heard, I'm sure with the production of 1984 when it was in. Oh yeah. York, and people like throwing up in the house. Like it is when it's happening in front of you, even though you know, it's fake, your brain doesn't have as, as easy a time distancing itself from what it's experiencing oh yeah i mean yeah. i i perform and i still get like weirded out seeing my friends on stage you know like it <laughs> yeah. is still really weird even yeah. even it there is something very visceral about seeing a body and seeing lungs inflating and a person yeah. in front of you and their eyes like raw with no filter in between mm-hmm. it like there is something to that and that, i'm not i'm not a very new agey person I mean, i'm not at all a new agey person right. but there is this sort of like this general energy in the room we've all experienced whether you've been in the house or you've been on stage oh yeah that happens in a live performance it has when everything's to. going yes mm-hmm. when everything's firing there is there's that experience and yeah it can really break bad on you and i it, or break well you know in in the sense of whatever you're you're working with so yeah, I just noticed here that when they did it at Avery Fisher Hall in 2015, Jeremy Jordan played Leo Frank, and I like Jeremy Jordan a lot, and I consider that to be, he's, no, that's that's the wrong direction. Yeah. Um, Great voice for it. Nice guy, too. Cool guy. Oh, good. Yeah, cool guy. There you go. That, that's nice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I don't, uh, Yeah, it's, I, I also think it's a hard role to cast. It's it a is. really hard role to cast. Yeah. And I also think that, that, relationship between uh the the relationship of 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 like the jewish plight in america gets looked over yeah pretty sub i mean it's events like this that kind of uh get don't get bring it into the forefront in a huge way yeah and it it was absolutely true and which is unfortunate i mean the only it's it's horrible thing that you can get this is how you get to things is through these uh 
attention is drawn when catastrophes occur. I well, mean, that's, that's why the, it was so trippy. We were teching this show that week that the whole the, the grave sites were all being vandalized. Oh, Those, really? Yeah, really surreal oh to be doing this show every single night. Yeah, with that happening, waking up in the morning and seeing stuff like that. Wow. Yeah, it was really, I mean, we had incredible audiences who were, you know, here with us on mm -hmm. the journey, sobbing. Yeah. But, was it Keegan? When yeah. You did it? Okay. Yeah. In March, April, mm -hmm. I think it was around then. But yeah, we were we were teching that week that, that all those sites were getting vandalized. Man. Heavy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> Heavy. Yeah. And nothing like that to bring you back and, and drag the relevance of the piece mm -hmm. right back into the forefront. Right. Which I also wonder if the, one of the reasons the show didn't do better is because in 98, that wasn't where the country was. I wonder if the show would do much better right. now where these issues feel very current and important and that you can parallel them to real life. Whereas in um, in 98, you know, we're in the... We're, uh, pushing into the second, you know, we're into the second Bill Clinton term, things are going well, right. the economy's on the rise, and yeah, the internet bubble hasn't burst yet. Like things are going very well, so it doesn't. It feels like a show sort of missing. And I wonder if Ragtime suffered from that a little bit too. It just missed the mark, maybe a little bit in relation. Right, which is what I actually think was was great about the beginning of like the year this year is that we had a Ragtime and a Parade running mm -hmm. in tandem that's with each true. other. You know, oh, two shows that true. I think. We're about as relevant as ever. Yeah, absolutely. That's good programming. That is very nicely done, Ford's Theater and Keegan Theater. So what's your favorite song? Uh, I, I think, like, just on pure, like, re-listenability, probably the opening sequence of the show. Because I do get misty. Yeah, mm -hmm. I get misty-eyed every time that full chorus kicks in at mm. the very end of that. Makes me makes me feel a bit, uh, a bit emotional. Okay. And then... Um, and then probably the the factory girl sequence is a close second when they're singing uh, "Who Call My Name" and then yeah, you come and up to my office, right? And the, out of that, every time I hear the strings cut back into um, playing the girls' theme mm -hmm. over top of him, it just like rips my heart that, out. The, the, that that sequence is startlingly good. I, I I have to yeah, I really like that. Uh, and it's also what's what one thing I like to look up though I've never talked about it before before we talk about a show. I look to look it up on iTunes and see what are the tracks that are the big sellers oh. in case anything pops out. Right. Usually nothing pops out. Usually it's the songs you imagine it to be. But this time, that song, The Factory Girls Come Up to My Office, is one of the best-selling tracks on the album individually, which is super interesting. Like it's, I bet composition professors play that kind of stuff, you know? Like, yeah. Because it is so far out. Yeah, and it is. Uh, it works. I think it's a great show. I think everyone should look. If you don't know it, you should listen to it. A hundred percent. Everyone should listen to it once. Um, I would even all this that I've said about it. I want to be clear. I would see it if it sure. was done. If I had the chance to see it, I would see it. I'm a little bit upset. I missed uh, James Finley as uh, as Hugh Dorsey. Now that I've looked up. Oh, the he was list. awesome. I'm, I'm pretty upset about that. I'll be honest. There's nothing scarier than that man delivering <laughs> an opening statement <laughs> to a trial. You're just like, this cannot go yeah, well. They got not... this giant. Yeah. jacked man <laughs> to come out here and ruin everything uh oh, hey james obviously <laughs> yeah uh yeah friend of the show um friend of the, pod. of the pod i'm i am sad i missed his performance in this but it is uh and i'm sure you were wonderful as brick craig as well. it was fun it was um fun. but yeah i would definitely i would i want to see it because i do feel like i'm missing 
there are things about it that bother me that I feel a live performance of it would solve. That is yeah. the, the basic tenet sure. for it. Um, well, thank you so much, Harrison. Thank for you. Coming on down to us. Where can people uh, find you these days? Um, you can find me on twitter.com uh, at Harrison. It's my name with all double letters. Uh, and then also, uh, I'll be out at Toby's Dinner Theater doing newsies from March 15th to uh, June 10th. Who are you playing in newsies? Davy. Which one's Davy? Seize the day. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! yeah. I get to I get to walk around with a little brother with me, and it's gonna be really fun. And we got a lot of a really good group of guys out All there right. The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. The original cast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at OriginalCastPod. You can follow me on Twitter at UnknownPenguin. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts from the convenience of your iPhone and or check out the original cast on Stitcher if that's how you get down. My thanks to Harrison Smith for coming down and talking to me today. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. Ah!